turn and give someone a fist bump and tell them go Chiefs. Super Bowl Sunday again. It's not often that you say Super Bowl Sunday again, but you do when you live in Kansas City, at least in uh, this season of life. It's hard for me to believe that there's a generation of people who lived in Kansas City for 49 years without a Super Bowl, because it's just kind of like, it's kind of like what we do now, which is, uh, is kind of nice. Um, if you have a Bible, today we're in Acts chapter 2, finishing a series that we began six weeks ago called Consecrate. If you don't have a Bible and you have a smartphone, you can maybe uh, look up the Bible on, uh, on the Bible app. Uh, if you didn't grab a bulletin on the way in, everything I read from Scripture will be on screen, so it'll be really easy for you to follow along. Uh, the word consecrate, if you look it up in a dictionary, is defined two ways, to declare something sacred or to dedicate yourself for a divine purpose. At Journey this year, we're saying that the, me the message and the mission of Jesus is not only sacred, but we are dedicating ourselves to it. And we are traveling through the book of Acts, not to learn uh, the new church, but to look at the old church so we can see how to, how to follow Jesus in a way that helps us fulfill his mission. As we finish this series today, we will next week jump into Acts chapter 3, and we'll be in a brand new series in Acts chapter 3 and 4 called The Power and the Pressure of a Jesus Movement. And I think here's, here's what you need to know, kind of coming from the revival to today. When the power of God is on your life, it's going to cause you to feel pressure. Uh, you're going to make some commitments that when the power of God hits you, you're going to have to break. You're going to um, have some goals for your life that when the power of God comes on you, you're going to have to change. Um, you're going to have some anxieties in your life that when the power of God comes on you, you're just going to have to trust with the power of God in your life will bring pressure to everything around you. We're going to see in uh, Acts chapter 3 the power of God fall in a powerful way but it causes the entire city of Jerusalem to be filled with the pressure of this Jesus movement. So that'll, that'll take us from next week all the way to Easter. Today, we're gonna finish Acts chapter two in a Bible study that I've titled um, The Organ Trail. How many of you were old enough to have played The Organ Trail on the computer um, and been scared for a generation of dying of dysentery or a snake bite or having your wagon wheel break. Like that first generation of computers, um, when, when we got to play the Oregon Trail and we got to cross with the old settlers of America, um, you know, from really the Kansas City area to the West Coast, kind of trained us on what it looked like um, to see a movement of people move from one place to another. Today in Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 46, we're gonna see the Oregon Trail of the Christian church. We're gonna see how the Christian church started in one place and expanded across three continents because of who the people were, how the people lived, what the people did that allowed them to follow Jesus and fulfill his mission. So as we jump in today to Acts chapter two, we read some of the greatest scripture in all of the Bible. We see the Oregon Trail of church history. Here's what the early church did. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is it. This, this would be the, um, like the crowning achievement of the New Testament church. These seven verses summarize for us 
what I think all of us want to be a part of in the movement of Jesus. I call it on our outline today, the desire of the church. I think we see in these seven verses what all of us hope to experience in our Christian walk, in our Christian life, in the church that we go to. As a matter of fact, when we partner with ministries, uh, new churches being planted, uh, right now we've got churches that we're helping in Atlanta and Denver and Las Vegas. When we uh, partner with new ministries, we've just onboarded a new ministry in the last two years in Scotland and Uganda. This year, we're looking at new ministries in Ireland. In two weeks, Pastor Scott will be in Peru doing pastoral training in South America. Anytime we look at who we're going to partner with, we always go back to Acts 2, 42 through 47, and we say, is this happening? Because this is what we want to happen. Every year when we get to the end of the year, we look back at our year and say, did this happen with us? This is how you can measure whether a movement is part of the church of Jesus Christ. Three things are happening. One, we're seeing that the people have intimacy with God. When you look at verses 43 and 47, you see a couple things that are happening through the church of Jesus. One, there's intimacy with God. There's this vertical connection between heaven and earth. We see in verse 43 that God's power was coming down in wonders, in signs like God was showing up and God was showing off. He was moving. And in verse 47, it says the people's praise was going up. So there was this heavenly connection in the church of Jesus. God was coming down. The people's praise was going up. And if you would ever walk around the old city of Jerusalem during the temple period, you would have seen from the city of Jerusalem from a distance, this cloud raising to the sky. It appeared heaven and earth were connected because the altar continually had a sacrifice on it that would symbolize with the smoke floating up that our praise is going up and God's presence is coming down. And like this, this following God thing is a connection of heaven and of earth. We see there was intimacy with God. There was this vertical connection. We also see with the people in verse 43 and 47, there was influence with the people in the city. There was this horizontal connection. So not only were the people in this early church connecting with God, but the people in this early church were connecting with their community. In a way, verse 43 says that the people of Jerusalem were spiritually aware. The words of the Bible were every soul was aware of what was happening and in verse 47, it says, all the people of Jerusalem were spiritually in favor of what, was having, of what was happening. When God's spirit moves, there's not only a vertical connection, but what God's people do in their community because God's spirit is moving should cause the community to look at the church with favor. We see Proverbs kind of becoming prophetic. Proverbs 11.10 says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. That's what was happening in Acts chapter two. Like God was moving, and even people who didn't go to the church were glad God was moving because it was helping the city. Now, I think, I think this demands that, that Christians, that followers of Jesus, begin to develop a little more what I would call ministry intelligence around the area that what's good for churches is good for the city. Because about 25 years ago in the new atheism movement, a line began to be circulated that's been repeated over and over and over and over and over. It is internet truth, but it is not true. You know there's a difference, right, between internet truth and what is really true? And the new atheist movement began to repeat this so often that it became internet true, um, that religion was responsible for all the problems of the world. As a matter of fact, they would go as far as to say that religions have caused all of the wars in the history of the world. Now remember, this is an atheist movement that's saying this. Historians who study history say that's actually not true. 
Anthropologists who study culture and history would say, that's actually not true. But it sounds true in our culture. If you would talk to people who don't go to churches, they would look at a church and say, the religion, churches are responsible for all the problems in the world. Churches are responsible for all the conflict and, and the war in the world. While that's not technically true, it is internet true. Which means Christians have to learn this Proverbs 11.30 concept that when, when things are going well with the righteous, really it's good for the city. So we need to learn to understand and tell people um, that healthcare, the healthcare, the global healthcare movement was founded by Christians. And if you were to ask somebody who said religion is the problem of everything in the world to get in your car and give you an afternoon and you were just to drive around and look at the hospitals of Kansas City, you would realize 90% of them are faith-based organizations because it is God and his people who believe that sick people should be helped. If you were to take someone who said religion is the problem of, of uh, uh, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world and you would say when the next tornado hits, Let's rush to the disaster zone and let's see how many faith-based organizations are on the ground working within 48 hours of a disaster anywhere. We should say, let's go to the courts, um, not, only, not only in Washington, D.C., but let's go to the international courts and let's see who are the people arguing for and defending those who need justice in their lives internationally. You would find out that almost all of them are people with a faith background and in a faith experience. If you said, let's go to the homeless shelters and let's see who keeps showing up time after time after time to feed and take care of those who have less, you would see the Christian church time and time and time again. I think it's time the church starts pushing back a little bit against the internet truth and saying, wait a minute, that's not true. Religion is not the cause for all the problems in the world. Sin is. And actually, people who follow Jesus rush into those problems to help them get better, not get worse. Amen? Like, I think there's this thought that, like, the church of Jesus Christ is not just connected to God. We're connected to our city in ways that make a tangible impact. More than that, we see that the church was increasing in kingdom people. So there was an eternal connection. The people were connected to God because God was moving through them. They were connected to their city but there was this increase in kingdom people. We read in verse 47 that people were getting saved. One of the things that we look back on at our church every year is, is there anyone in our community who was not a follower of Jesus last year who is a follower of Jesus? Do we have anybody who made a spiritual decision to turn from their sin and to follow Jesus? How many people made spiritual decisions? How many people publicly were baptized to tell the world, I'm not living for myself anymore, I'm living for Jesus? We ask that question not only of our church, but of anyone that we support because when God is moving, people are getting saved. Proverbs 11.30 says it this way, the fruit of righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. These are the results of Jesus' church, but it's not the recipe. Let me say it again. We all desire to be a part of a church like this, but you are not a part of a church like this because you want it to happen. You're a part of a church like this because you have devoted your life to some things that we read in Acts chapter two, allow you to have a vertical connection, a horizontal impact, and an eternal help for people. Number two, as we look at the devotion of the church, we read back through this text again and we see what helps followers of Jesus come alive. What was the devotion of the church? Let's look at verses 42 through 46 again. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I believe the only scripture outside of these six verses that Christians desire to live in more are the scriptures in Revelation 21 and 22 that talk about the eternal kingdom of God, heaven. I believe Christians are presented with two utopian views of life, the eternal kingdom of heaven and the picture of Jesus' church in action. We would call one heaven and one heaven on earth. In 2009, God called Danielle and I to begin praying about and getting ready to, to, to move to Lee Summit and start a new church. At the time, I didn't know one person who was starting churches. I didn't know church planting was a thing. In 2010, we committed fully to that. We got ready for that. We kind of sold our house and our cars and most of the things in our house and kind of got ready to live a nomad's existence, figuring out where God would want us to be. And then in 2011, we dove like headfirst into this church planning movement and we found out that there were thousands of church planners around America and the globe who were starting new churches. And what we found is all of them had a desire to plant something like Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 46. We were all idealists thinking if I could be a part of any church in the history of the world, this is the one I'd wanna be a part of. How do we recreate this? This was the genesis, not just for our church, this was the genesis of the church of Jesus Christ that is now 2,000 years old. You say, what was happening that was so special? It says that they were devoted to five things. The word devoted is a Greek word, proskartereo, that means it's something that somebody did continuously. It's something somebody abandons themselves to. It's something that somebody surrenders themselves to. It is a devotion that takes over your life. You say, why was this early church so devoted to certain things? Watch this. Because they did not just have belief, they had becoming. They weren't just learning things, their life was changing. They had not received the belief of Christianity, they were becoming more like Jesus and it was driving their life, it was changing their life. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus said, you're not just gonna receive a message, he said, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will become, you, you'll be turned into different people. When you receive, you will be. If you find yourself following Jesus and filled with his spirit, you will fulfill his mission. You will be devoted to his mission. Why? Because he won't let you not be. Have you ever been using Siri to get to some place and when you thought you knew the directions better than her, she started yelling at you until you followed her directions? Danielle and I uh, last night drove up to Smithville. I, I, had, uh, I got to officiate the wedding of a young couple in our church. So we drove up to Smithville, and right before we got there, we stopped a quick trip just to kind of refuel and kind of get ready before I went to kind of pastor this wedding. And all the way up, Siri was guiding us until I turned into quick trip. And because quick trip was not on her plan for the trip, the entire time we sat in the parking lot at quick trip, she wanted us to know um, that we were off the route, that we're off the route. You need to turn around. You need to turn around. You need to turn right. You need to turn left. I told Danielle, turn her off. She doesn't know. I want to be at Quick Trip, not where she wants to be. Turn her off um, because I don't want to listen to her the whole time. I'm trying to get something to drink before I get back in the car. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be like that in our soul. 
The Holy Spirit is supposed to so loudly in your chest be telling your soul how to follow that the minute you get out, get off, the Holy Spirit should be saying, you need to make a U-turn. You need to make a U-turn. Um, you need to turn right. You need to turn left. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does the spinny wheel and it's like, we're gonna have to reroute. You are so far off the path of Jesus. I gotta find a new one for you because you really like messed the thing up. Some of you are in the rerouting phase of the Holy Spirit right now. You're like, I can't hear him. And it's like, he hadn't figured it out yet. Just give him time. You're way off the beaten path. Like Jesus said, when you receive, you will be. You will become. When you receive, I will begin to direct your life. When you receive, I will begin to drive your life. When you receive, you will be devoted to some things that help you follow Jesus and fulfill his mission. What will you be devoted to? Five things. Devotion number one, you'll be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's what's cool about this, though. The key to the apostles' teaching, according to verse 37, was that it had captured and changed the hearts of people. The apostles' teaching was not about going to school. The apostles' teaching was about receiving the spirit of God that gave life to people. The apostles' teaching was not something that educated your mind as much as it was something that changed your heart. And I need you to understand this. The power of the apostles' teaching is that it changes hearts. If you have been reading your Bible the last few years and you are not more like Jesus, you've been doing it wrong. Let me say it again because only one heard it and processed it and agreed with it. (laughs) If you've been reading your Bible but not becoming more like Jesus... You're reading it wrong. Because like, you know, you can comb your hair with a fork like Little Mermaid. It's not like, it's not made for that, but you can do that. You can read your Bible to try to figure out how to have some image conscious stuff in your life. Or you can read it with your heart and you can let it change your life. The power of the apostles teaching was not the content. It was the, that it cut to the heart And as Christian Gracia said last week, according to Hebrews 4.12, that once it gets inside your heart, it like does surgery and reorients things in your life. The apostles' teaching changed hearts. My life verse uh, is Ezra 7.10. Ezra was an Old Testament priest, prophet, scribe, who it says that uh, he set his heart to um, study the law of the Lord, to, to obey it, and to teach it. Um, I believe that's why God has created me on planet earth. It took me in my 40s to realize what my life calling was, but I think this is my life calling. Um, I absolutely love God's word. I love to study God's word. Um, I love following God's word. It makes me better every time I do what it says rather than what I want to uh, do, um, and I love teaching it. I believe one day when I stand before God, he'll ask me these four questions. Um, did you keep love for my word in your heart? Did you always study it? Did you always try to obey it? Did you always try to teach it to other people? I think God created me to be like Ezra a couple thousand years later. This this is my life. But notice the order of how Ezra approached God's word. He loved it with his heart before he studied it with his mind. You cannot study your way into a changed heart. If your heart has not been touched by Jesus, if your heart has not been called by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, if your heart has not been cut by the gospel to desire Jesus, you can read your Bible your entire life and never get anything out of it. But when your heart has been touched, your mind gets hungry. 
Your mind can't change your heart, but your heart can change the desire of your mind to want to get into the word. And then your mind can change the things your hands do to try to live for God. And then your legacy changes because your life for God helps other people live for God. That was the ministry of Ezra. That was the ministry of the apostles' teaching. I find it interesting in Acts chapter two that it said that they followed the apostles' teaching because if you were to just back up and say, what were they teaching? I can tell you what they weren't teaching. They weren't teaching the book of Romans. It hadn't been written yet. They weren't teaching the book of Ephesians. It hadn't been written yet. They weren't teaching Galatians and Colossians and Philippians. They weren't teaching Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of the books of the Bible in Acts chapter two had been written yet. They weren't teaching the book of James. They weren't studying the prophecy of the book of Revelation. You say, what was the apostles teaching? They were talking about a man named Jesus who was crucified, buried, and resurrected and how giving your life to him gives you salvation and changes everything about your life. We've tried to, you say, what were the apostles teaching? They were teaching what would become the New Testament, but they weren't doing inductive Bible studies in the New Testament because it wasn't there yet. They were literally probably talking about four areas every time they got together. At Journey, we call them our four discipleship tracks. We believe these are the tracks you have to take in this order to really be impacted by the word of God. The first is our Jesus track. It helps people know and love and walk with Jesus. By the way, you'll never love Jesus more deeply than you know him, so you gotta study his life, you gotta study his teaching, you gotta study what he did. So in the Jesus track, we walk through the book of John and we help people really just learn who Jesus is so they can fall in love with Jesus because you really can't fall in love with scripture until you fall in love with Jesus. But then we have what we call our scripture track that helps you have a biblical worldview. The apostle Paul stood up in Athens and said, I found a statue to an unknown God, which you don't know we do. And he began to teach Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he helped them have a biblical worldview of who God was from the beginning of time to end of time and how Jesus fit in the middle of that as his savior. We have what we call our life tracks, which most of the, ep the epistles were life tracks. Life tracks are helping you apply Jesus to what's going on in this season of your life. It says, I'm struggling in my marriage. Bible has some stuff to say about that. Struggling in my parenting. The Bible has some stuff to say about that. Got to make a big decision about my future. The Bible has something to say about that. Struggling with my finances. The Bible has something to say about that. Struggling with some of my mental health. The Bible has something to say about that. Like the, the life track is saying, where are you at in your life where you're like, I need to know what the Bible says about this. We have lots of classes like that. And then the last is the leadership track because this New Testament constantly was teaching multiplication showing people how to lead others spiritually so they could lead others spiritually so they could lead others spiritually. Like, what were the apostles talking about? Just being in love with Jesus, having a biblical worldview, applying the life and teaching of Jesus to your life, real time, and kind of reminding us how important it is to multiply our faith in others. The apostles' teaching cut hearts, captured minds, directed hands, and left legacies. That's the goal of our church as well. Uh, for those of you who, uh, who right now aren't reading your Bible daily because you don't know how to or because you were going to start a Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year and you jumped in too late, uh, we've created a special what we call Lent. Lent is the season that is about six weeks uh, that leads up to Easter. There's 40 days of Lent, really 46, but they don't count the Sundays. Um, but it's 40 days of getting your heart and your mind ready for Easter Sunday, which is March 31st. It begins Valentine's Day this year, February 14th. If you have not been reading scripture, but you want to get into about a chapter a day, 90 seconds of reading a day, you can grab this from the Connection Center when you leave. Uh, we also have a really good devotional by Paul David Tripp that's just the three pages every day to read during Lent to get your heart ready for Easter. Um, if your heart has been touched by Jesus, 
jump into scripture. That is your next step. We're trying about every 40 days to give you a new on-ramp to get into Bible reading because the apostles' teaching is so important. Devotion number two is the fellowship. It's a fun word in the Greek to say koinonia. The fellowship. But the translation's better than the word. It's not translated being together as much as it's translated doing together. We read that the early church, um, they did faith life in spiritual community. They learned together. They went to church together. It says they went to the temple together. They discussed what they heard at church together. It says they met in their homes and they talked about faith stuff together. It says they met needs. What would happen is they would go to church and then they would talk and they would either talk about something they learned or somebody that they were aware of who had a need. And then as a group, they'd figure out how to go meet it. This, this was a church who did life spiritually together. We had as a, a staff um, in November, we always bring in a, a guest speaker to kind of minister to our, our staff team and get us healthy, keep us healthy for the upcoming ministry year. And we had a guy in this year by the name of Mark Dance who pastored for 35 years, and now he's the leader of ministry longevity at Guidestone. Um, Guidestone is an organization that kind of like is a, is a retirement-based organization for nonprofit Christian schools, Christian colleges, churches. It's where we put our 401ks called 403Bs. They kind of they help you finish well if you work in the nonprofit sector. That's what they do. And he's the North American director, Canada, United States, Mexico, of making sure people finish well. So we had him come in and talk to us about how to stay strong and finish well so that we don't uh, burn out or quit before God would be ready for us to burn out and quit. And of the two days that he was with us and the hours and hours and hours that he taught, when we met the next week and said, what was the most powerful thing that Mark said to you that stood out? Almost every one of the team members in the room with me said the exact same thing. He talked about the power of spiritual community in your faith life and the weakness of trying to do faith alone. And he said these words, I wrote them down verbatim and every one of our staff remembered it. He said, if you are alone as an American Christian, it's your fault. If you are alone in your faith life as an American Christian, you have chosen that. Because the churches we have and the ministries they offer and the people around places like this who desire to know you, love you, serve with you, serve you, are so many, if you're alone, it's your fault. It was a harsh statement. It was made by a pastor to a group of ministry leaders, so we were big enough to take it. But every one of us a week later was still kind of had that comment ringing in our ears. If you're alone spiritually, it's your fault. You need to understand as you move through 2024, if you're alone spiritually, the only reason you're gonna remain that way is because you choose to. Because our church is not designed for you to stay that way, remain that way. I mean, we have so many processes in our church to help you not be alone that for you to remain alone has to be a conscious decision against koinonia, doing life with other Christians. The early church was power-filled because they did it together. Devotion number three, it says they uh, constantly devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This does not mean what you think it means. It's actually a reference to the observance of the Lord's Supper, not just having meals together. Very, very specifically, when they were together, they observed communion. Now, what we call communion, the Jews called Passover. So I want you to think about what this means, because what this is saying is that Christians were constantly aware of the presence of Jesus in their life. That's, that's what they were saying. They devoted themselves to constantly remembering that like Jesus was in their presence. So our communion is the Jewish Passover. The Jewish Passover is celebrated how many times a year? 
Okay, a couple of you got it right. The answer is once. I'll give it to you and then I'll ask the question again. So the Jewish Passover is celebrated how many times a year? So one time a year, the Jewish people would remember through the Passover lamb and the Passover uh, bread, one time a year, they would remember God came down to be with us. In the Christian church, that one time a year would for many extend to at least, how many Sundays are there uh, in a week? But yeah, so one time a year became one time a week that, hey, we don't just remind ourselves once a year Jesus is with us. We remind ourselves every day, uh, every week. But the New Testament church went even further because it says when they met in homes, they there would even then participate in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine in remembrance of Jesus. One of the themes of the New Testament church was to constantly remind each other, Jesus is here. It's not a once a year thing. It's not a once a week thing. Christians today can't live for Jesus the way you're intended if you only think he's here once a week. You have to remember every day. So the gospel message that the presence of Jesus is with you was one of the most powerful and prevailing messages in the New Testament. It would say stuff like this. In your attitudes, you should remember Jesus is with you. In your relationships with each other, you should like remember that Jesus is with you. When it comes to your marriages, gosh, you should really kind of like remember in your marriage that Jesus is with you. When it comes to dealing with people who have hurt you, well, Jesus had people who hurt him. Like every message in the New Testament was this reminder that like, hey, you're a Jesus person and Jesus is with you. The breaking of bread was not that the church went out to eat together. The breaking of bread is that the church constantly reminded one another, you're not alone. Jesus is with you. They devoted themselves to remembering Jesus was with them. They also, devotion number four, devoted themselves to prayer. And what I love is how the church had training wheels to learn to pray without ceasing. Because their prayer were times of both regular prayer and reactionary prayer. So we read in the New Testament that the disciples who lived in Jerusalem still three times a day went to the temple to pray. So the three Jewish times of prayer, they had morning prayer, afternoon prayer, evening prayer. These were, um, these were in gaps of time, not specific times. So from sunup to about three hours into the day, you could go to the temple for morning prayers. From lunchtime until about three hours in the afternoon, you could go for afternoon prayers. From sundown until about three hours after it got dark, you could go for evening prayers. So these were the training wheels to remind people, hey, before you start your day, pray. Tough morning at the office, hey, before you go back after lunch, pray. Um, hard day, before you go to bed, pray. They're like these training wheels of prayer. In Psalm 119, 164, David said, God, I praise you seven times a day. So the monastic orders of the, the movement of monks would pray seven times a day. And their order of prayer, they would start at 6 a.m. and pray every three hours. 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., 9 p.m., midnight. If you ever went and stayed at a monastery that kind of kept the hours of prayer, the bells would chime every three hours and you would go pray together. All of this was in pursuit of what 1 Thessalonians 5.17 calls just pray without ceasing. Like these prayer times to were, were to remind people you should probably be praying all day long. So in the book of Acts, I don't know if you heard Pastor Vance say it Friday night at Revival, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, 26 times the church prayed together in those 28 chapters. Let me tell you when the church prayed in the book of Acts, this is just summarizing some of them. When they needed God to move, they stopped and prayed first. When a situation made them afraid, they stopped and prayed. When they had a friend who was in trouble, they stopped and prayed. When they had friends who were sick, they stopped and prayed. 
When they needed to make a big decision, they stopped and prayed. When they were dealing with conflict in their relationships, they stopped and prayed. When they had a desire to reach a city, they stopped and prayed. When they needed money for the mission, they stopped and prayed. When they needed more leadership in the church, they stopped and prayed. When there weren't enough volunteers to help, they stopped and prayed. Like you get the pattern of the New Testament church? Not three times a day, not seven times a day. When there's a need, pray first. Like whatever happens in your life, pray first. Let the first thing you do be prayer. Because when you are devoted to that, you'll just remember the presence of God is always with you. And that, that will change things. They were devoted to prayer. And then number five, they were devoted to together. The Christians of Acts 2 live for Jesus. And they live for one another. By the way, you might underline that phrase, one another, on your handout. Do you know the words one another? That phrase is found 98 times in the New Testament. It describes how followers of Jesus did life with other followers of Jesus, one another. I don't know if you've ever seen, Zach, I think about our high school kids when they come home from youth camp. When you see kids after they come home from youth camp, they, they like move as a pack. They're together before church and then during church, and then they all go someplace after church. Our summer interns in the summer, they like start at church, they, they're together before church and then like during church and then like after church. Like I think literally our student ministry and our intern ministry keeps Canes and Belton and Andes and Lee Summit in business because as groups of people, they're just always there hanging out. When I think about the one another's of scripture, I think oh, that's, that's what that looks like. Christians who just choose to do all of their life together. They're faithful, they're living in community, they live for other people, not themselves. We would say they're faithful, they live in community, they practice generosity. I don't know if you've seen as you walk in the doors of our church, but those are the three words we're striving for as a church this year, faithfulness, generosity, and community. Why? We're not trying to do a new thing. We're trying to do an old thing. We're trying to do a kingdom thing. We're trying to do an ancient thing. We're trying to do an Oregon Trail thing. We saw how the church moved across the continent to Asia and to Africa and to Europe. We're seeing what it looks like on the pages of scripture and we're thinking, man, I want that. You might want it, but will you be devoted to what it takes to have it? Our first question today as we get ready to look at our reflection questions will be this. Could you have been a part of this church? Like your life as it is today, could it have even been devoted to these five things? And if not, what needs to change in your real life today so that you can get back to the old life, the ancient life, the kingdom life of the New Testament, so that who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing can continue to work in you and through you to the city we live in and the city we serve. As our questions scroll, take what you've heard, apply it to your life, just have a little conversation with Jesus, and I'll be back to close this in about two and a half minutes. God, thank you for this unbelievable picture of your church. Not just what the church looked like 2,000 years ago, but what the church is supposed to look like 2,000 years from now if we do it right. Help us in our generation to be devoted to the things your people were devoted to so you might do in us again what you did through them. In Jesus' name, amen.